happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room coming to you live on April the 13th, 2022 for episode 256. My name is Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City for a few more months where I am the um, media literacy teacher, but I'm the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, um, where I also get to help our teachers with some good technology integration projects. And I am joined as always by really who has become, I think his latitude, like scale of of uh, like authority has gone up like well into Canada now, although maybe not. But it's Dr. Jason Neifer coming to us from Missoula, Montana. How are you, Dr. Neifer? Oh, good evening, Dr. Fryer. I'm well, sir. Um, it is uh, April in Montana, uh, so that meant that last week we had a 74-degree day, and on Monday night we had a terrible snowstorm that dumped two feet of snow on parts of the state. So that's kind of how Montana springtime goes. But wow. uh, I am the executive director and curriculum. No, I'm not the curriculum. I'm the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, school located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Missoula, Montana, in the western part of Big Sky Country. Um, but as much as I'd like to talk about the weather, Wes, I think we have another agenda tonight. We do, and Dr. Neifer has been the the king of the hyperlinks tonight. So <clears throat> we get together every Wednesday evening and talk about the tech news through an educational lens. And we have shared a lot of links tonight, as always, on our Google document. And the easiest way to find that is to go to our website, edtechsr.com, and click on links or just go slash links. And tonight's topics, uh, which we are now categorizing and have for some time include Google, Microsoft, Apple, privacy, the Ukraine-Russian war, the tech correction, creating uh, personal technology, which also includes a little game article too. Uh, and then there is a miscellaneous category that I just didn't know uh, where else we would put that. Sometimes we have a social media category and it could fit there, but we will always end with some geeks of the week. So Dr. Neifer, as our King Link contributor this year, this year, Yes, for life <laughs> for this week. Where would you like to begin tonight's discussion? Well, um, let's just do some kind of straight up tech news. A lot of interesting things going on in the tech world. And I'll, I guess I'll start with Google. Um, this is a, a couple weeks ago article, but I thought it was just interesting to mention. Uh, 9 to 5 Google uh, posted a list on April 4th. Um, Abner Lee, who I think is a prolific writer for uh, 9 to 5 Google, um, posted a list of libraries in the United States that will loan you a Chromebook and a hotspot. And I thought, I, and I guess I, I probably already figured or, or knew about or uh, thought about this as a possibility, but there are um, a lot of libraries that have, have utilized the Chrome uh, the Chrome OS platform as a way to safely give out laptops, uh, which uh, uh, you can log in with your Google account. And they probably, I would imagine, create, a generic account for them as well and loan them out along with hotspots. And I know there's a lot of money that went to public libraries and other institutions that serve it, uh, served uh, the population in this way. But I thought that was a really novel example of a way that you could provide text access for someone in a managed environment because of how wonderful the management features are on Chrome OS. And um, they particularly talk about uh, Har the Harris County, Texas library, um, uh, picked up 15,000 Chromebooks um, uh, to be able to loan out to folks uh, uh, during the pandemic and after. And I just think that's a really clever uh, strategy uh, for getting um, uh, getting this access out. Again, I'm, I'm not in a situation where I'm writing articles and, and needing to publish or, or perish, but what a fantastic study. Like how many families um, are, are utilizing that? It, the article talks about you know, checkout times for weeks or months. And uh, that's pretty fascinating to the li libraries have been and continue to be essential parts of our, uh, our educational infrastructure of uh, uh, sort of the fabric of citizenship in the country. Um, you know, such important roles that librarians play and the libraries play. <clears throat> and that's just a pretty fascinating thing to check out because I hadn't even really realized they were doing that. And both of our major library systems in Oklahoma are, are listed there. I just checked. So, wow. 
Let's see, a couple other uh, interesting articles. Uh, this one struck me as, as super interesting. Uh, ZDNet on April 7th reported that despite iPhones being kind of the reigning champion with teens, uh, there has been some uptick in the data suggesting that teens are turning to Android. And uh, let me be clear, right now... Um, uh, uh, we're, we're talking about, um, uh, upper 80% of teens are utilizing, uh, iPhones over Android phones. And I will also say that I have some family evidence of this. Um, I have nieces, um, 18 and 20, um, uh, wonderful kiddos. Uh, uh, the, one of them is a sophomore at the University of Arkansas and the other one is graduating this spring from high school and also going to the University of Arkansas. But I, I've laughed in the past because, uh, their their dad, uh, my brother-in-law, has attempted to, um, you know, to, to find cheap deals on cell coverage, um, oftentimes coming with, you know, free or cheap Android phones. And my, my, my nieces were, were not a fan of that decision and uh, felt uh, a bit embarrassed by carrying around their Android phone. Um, but I... I the because it's the small number of Android phones being used by teens, the the fact that there's a couple percentage points difference is actually a pretty big shift in the number of of uh, uh, teens utilizing the Android um, architecture. And I know you come from an all iPhone family, Wes, um, and uh, you even briefly experimented with an Android phone, and then um, once this utility left, you went running back to to the Apple family. Hey, nine months. I made it nine months. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, any any thoughts about that as 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 a father and and since you you uh, uh, work with a lot of students too, what what the breakdown looks like for you? Well, I'm curious about what is what do they think or what does this author say is cause? Is it the fold phone? I guess or what what do they that, theorize? That's one of the things. But to be honest, well, first of all, I think the foldable phones are silly. I'll just come out and say that. But then secondarily. Um, you know, this could be also the economy because, you know, Apple phones come at a premium, whereas you can pick up decent Android devices for a, a part of the cost. I don't think he's got very good analysis, which is part of the reason why I want to talk about this article. Yeah, I, I think this is kind of clickbait. I don't know. I was checking. Of course, I'm, well, I don't want to completely throw him under the bus, but I was just looking at the headlines that he has on ZDNet and the different articles. So I, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't. Seem like there's a lot of evidence to support this. Well, I'm teaching my Wikipedia article series right now to my sixth graders, which I just love, you know. And one of the things about Wikipedia is no original writing. You must everything must be cited. It's supposed to, or it, they have warnings, you know, saying we need additional references and things like that. So it's yeah, I'm kind of like okay, where's where's the where's the the hard evidence and facts here? So I'm not sure. Um, I certainly don't see that at our school. I mean, iPhones a bit. Have been dominant and still, yeah, continue to be so. And I would say that's my general experience at the University of Montana as well. And I, I am always extremely curious about the device breakdown of students in particular. And I mean, there are there are students running around with uh, the white plastic uh, uh, MacBook from you know twelve years ago, right? Is when oh, wow. yeah. that that last was a reality. So. Um, yeah, there's a, there it's, yeah, I would say it's, it's, it's a little more equal than iPhone versus Android, uh, uh, on the laptop uh, piece, but yeah, I, I relatively rarely see Android phones compared to iPhones. And interestingly, if you'll go to the actual link of the survey that he cites, which is a Piper Sandler spring 22 survey, taking stock with teens, the word Android does not appear on that document and you have to click to request the report and, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, if that's a really big finding, why is that not even listed in the, you know, 30 or 40 lines of main points from the article? So, yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, not not convinced. So, <laughs> hey, glad to see Android still, you know, still alive and kicking. But. Sure, sure. <laughs> Um, and then a couple other quick ones. Um, Chrome Unboxed on April 12th, a wonderful Chrome blog, or uh, by a Chrome OS blog, by the way, uh, uh, reports that YouTube now has a subtitle editor, uh, which is a really interesting development. Uh, I believe we talked about this when it happened, but um, the uh, YouTube get, got rid of the kind of submissible 
uh, process for adding subtitles uh, to videos. And that was a way that the crowdsourcing was used um, quite a bit with videos. And I know that um, uh, a couple of, of educators uh, that, that publish YouTube content utilize that, where they'd have students from around the world uh, translate their videos into multiple languages. I'm thinking of Paul Anderson, the Bozeman science guy um, on Twitter. And he's uh, an amazing YouTube educator. And um uh, and utilized that to get translations of his, of his uh, science videos. And they depreciated that functionality. And there was a lot of pretty aggressive pushback, particularly in the community, for those that were looking for accessible videos, right? Which would include, um, uh, would include, uh, include captioning. And now that there is a subtitle editor role that you can assign with your YouTube videos to allow someone to go in and modify your video subtitles, which I think is a wonderful uh, strategy on, on YouTube's part. So a couple thoughts about this. Number one, hello, Peggy. Uh, wonderful to have you join us. Peggy will remember this. Back in the day, K-12 online conference, which you can still find at k12onlineconference.org. Um, we were using a tool called DotSub. And I think our uh, Jose uh, Rodriguez, who's one of our uh, organizers for a long time, might have found it. And it allowed you to upload a video and then have a language transcription. And then and maybe that in YouTube, I guess, probably does this too, right? Transcribe in different languages. Uh, I think transcription is just hugely, hugely important. Yeah, I don't even know. Is DotSub even online anymore? Um, I haven't even looked. Um, yeah, any video, any language. There you go. Hey, it's my early geek of the week. DotSub is in the business of captioning and translating videos and so much more. Language services. Okay, it doesn't look like it's the same there's a legacy login. Who knows what they're, how, I haven't checked, checked them out thoroughly. But anyway, the point is, um, especially for any kind of public institution, and I know this from five years as the director of distance learning at Texas Tech University and the College of Education, it is essential that when you're creating educational materials that you're doing so uh, with accessibility in mind. It's the law. Um, was it 529 or what was, the, you probably are more familiar. Jason, yep. Yeah, guidelines and, and laws. So I think that's fantastic. Um, I was just doing something. Was it in French? Was there something that was involving French? I think it was something we were talking about. Uh, some of my kids have interviewed for their oral history projects, our sixth graders, um, some family members that, that speak um, Chinese. And I think maybe one that speaks Korean, you know, and, 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 Things really vary widely in terms of quality um, and then just your speed and, and things like that. But it just keeps getting better. And so that was one thought. The other thought was, of course, we are you know, being transcribed. I know on Facebook Live, if you go to Facebook.com slash EdTechSR you know, and, and you're watching and we have three live viewers watching us tonight right now, um, you can have those transcriptions. If they're not on by default, you can just turn those on. And I'm pretty impressed whenever I'll check those out, just how good they are. So, um, you know, that's an interesting thing to think about in a uh, web design um, technology applications, you know, thinking about accessibility, the importance of accessibility, and then the ways that these tools, which of course that is an artificial intelligence powered feature because speech to text and the ability for speech to text uh, technologies to become even more accurate, all of that relies on machine learning and, and AI. So very cool and glad to see, you know, YouTube continuing to uh, just grow and get better and, and offer more features. So spoken as a true Google Kool-Aid drinker, as I will acknowledge readily. <laughs> And then I have one last one, and I see you've got one too, Wes. Um, uh, Kevin Tofold about Chromebooks um, uh, has an interesting article from uh, it looks looks like April tenth that there is it, there was a, a an error, um, and there's a, a a a page that popped up that I don't believe is there anymore, but. Uh, apparently, HP is going to offer something called the HP Elite Dragonfly Chromebook Enterprise, um, and the starting price for this Chromebook is twenty one hundred dollars, twenty one sixty five uh, to be exact. And um, and there's been a lot of discussion about this. There was an also also an article and discussion on about Chromebooks. There was a an ex I'm sorry, in on uh, Chrome Unboxed. Um, I, there was also a discussion about this on Reddit the other day. But one of the things that um, um, 
uh, it was, it's ridiculously spec'd, uh, in, in, in all of the wonderful ways. Uh, it's a Core i7 processor. It has 32 gigabytes of RAM, a 520 gigabyte, um, uh, a hard drive, uh, a, uh, really high resolution, uh, display, uh, 2256 by 1536. And then the build quality that one might expect from the higher end HP stuff. And, you know, it's easy to, uh, and I believe it's, uh, by the way, it's a, a three by two screen as opposed to a, um, uh, as opposed to a, a 1080p screen. So it's got the kind of o- older fashion ratio, which is starting to become the preference again by some users. And the articles talk about that while this is obviously comes off as ridiculous, um, that, you know, that is kind of what enterprise stuff costs. And in fact, if you're buying enterprise level uh, uh, computers um, and uh, buying them in bulk, which I'm assuming this is what's going to happen here, you know, it tends to come at a higher price. Uh, there's usually better warranties. There's usually higher end equipment because they want le- uh, um, uh, uh, less faults uh, in the hardware itself so that it decreases overall costs in the enterprise to support hardware. But I thought that was kind of an interesting development. And there is... Um, there's expected to be a lower price one that's under a thousand dollars. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if Chrome OS would utilize these statistics or these, uh, um, uh, uh, specs in a way that other operating systems might, but I would assume that it's a very speedy Chromebook. So Wes, are you in for a $2,000 Chromebook? Hey, we'll wait for the official HP pricing. Cause I think that's, that's still coming. So no, probably not. Um, we'll probably. Hey, my Google speaker is answering your question in the other room. That's interesting. Um, I don't think I prompted that unless the dog did. Um, so we're going to probably, you know, look at buying a MacBook and, you know, maybe a, an iPad or something like that in the transition to the new living and teaching situation. But probably not. The, the old Chromebooks we have are still working. So, hey, when we need to. You know, our daughter went to France, need a computer. Hey, here's the old Dell, Dell Mini or the Dell 11, you know, Chromebook. Yep. That worked for. All right. Well, I actually put in a Google article too, although this one could go down in the personal technology category as well. I know Jason's also a T-Mobile subscriber. Um, the article from Engadget yesterday on April 12th is that T-Mobile resurrects Google Photos unlimited storage with a catch. Um, I happened to notice today helping my wife um, with some receipts in her email I think she's about 80% full of her Google storage. Um, that is an important thing to take a look at if you're just using the default storage because, you know, the more we live and the more services and we have plugged in and the more pictures we take and all that stuff, you know, the more um, the more data that we are required to, uh, to pay for unless you want to, you know, delete stuff or whatever. Who wants to do that? So <clears throat> I have actually turned on my Google Photos um, I have my photos back up to iCloud as well as Google Photos, and I absolutely put in a, pit, a little uh, plug here. Love the AI features in both, but especially in Google Images. I've been making some slideshows like "Show me all the pictures of spring uh, or flowers," you know, and when we have these rolling on the Chromecasts, or "Show me all my fire pictures," which like camping and barbecue grills and candles. It's just cool that it can find all that stuff. Anyway. Uh, they make you choose on Google Photos whether you're going to keep the original high resolution full or you're going to go to a lower resolution. And I have actually stepped down to the lower resolution, even though uh, I think we are paying um, for a like a family tier of storage uh, with Google to have a little bit more. Well, now T-Mobile, interestingly, offers a package where you can pay $15 a month and they call it a Google One plan. And it includes two terabits of or ter- terabytes of storage, but you can go back to the unlimited full resolution photo and video storage. So that's kind of amazing. Um, And it also, uh, it's going to be available April 26th. You can have VPN access. It has advanced photo editing and extended trials for Stadia and YouTube premium. Um, So if you're not a T-Mobile customer already, that may not be as appealing, but as you're kind of looking at your subscription situation and how much you're paying, uh, depending upon what you need, that that could be of interest. So, Dr. Neifer, what is your photo backup situation? Do you upload to Google Photos, and are you paying for some kind of premium plan to get some more storage for you and or your your wife too? Oh, you're muted. You're you're muted. 
Uh, there you go. Um, the, I am paying for, well, Google Photos is my backup, um, is my primary backup. I am also going to, uh, iPhoto as well, the, uh, the cloud backup on my iPhone, but I, I like both, uh, to be honest. And, um, the, uh, you know, I, I have thoughts that someday I'm going to organize all these photos and I'm, I'm not going to, that's just, Hey, AI will well. help you when you're ready. So yeah, there you go. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that someday maybe, but, um, the the I do I do spend I think it's three or four dollars a month for the extra storage for for Google in part because I mean I'm I'm a Google guy so I you know I have a lot of stuff in Google Drive I have massive archives I have all my old teaching archives which are at this point you know twelve to twenty years old all sitting in 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 a Google Drive so I I do think it's interesting. Um, um, that the T-Mobile is headed this way and since I am probably not going to go away from, from T-Mobile. Um, I've been generally happy with their service. I got some little things that I would uh, have an issue with. Uh, they're not super great um, about uh, like when you get, when you get a subsidy to buy a new phone, um, sometimes the payments that they promise don't show up and then you have to argue through X, Y, and Z. But the, um, I think it's a great thing. And I think T-Mobile is generally speaking, works pretty hard to add extra value to their accounts. All right. Well, hey, we got through all the Google articles. So why don't uh, let's jump down to a quick miscellaneous. I don't know where else to fit this one in. Um, this is Neiman Labs, which is actually an outstanding uh, source. I, I enjoy reading their stuff. And I think I actually have their um, their apps. Um, do I have them as bookmarks, maybe. Um, I think I maybe have them as, as web bookmarks. Um the article says the New York Times would really like its reporters to stop scrolling and get off Twitter at least once in a while. And so, again, this was from April 7th. And uh, interestingly, they have changed their policies. And so uh, previous to this policy for The New York Times, it wasn't mandatory that all journalists were on Twitter, but it was extremely recommended. There was, as they say, newsroom pressure that was significant. Um, and, but what they've asked the reporters to do now is quote, meaningfully, sorry, meaningfully reduce how much time you're spending on the platform, tweeting or scrolling in relation to other parts of the job. And so the article says part of the, the impetus for this is just concern that kind of Twitter has more power than it should have over mainstream media and the focus um, and so they're not wanting their journalists, I guess, to be so focused on Twitter feedback and, and the pulse of Twitter, you know, that that has an inordinate perhaps influence on, you know, what they're writing and, and, and what they are amplifying. Um, but, you know, the author points out there, there's still, there has been tension. There's still going to be tension between, you know, time spent on social media um, and then the other, you know, the other aspects of a journalist job. And I guess I'll comment that I think this is interesting to think about from a school standpoint, right? Um, I'm aware, for instance, that it, it's not a great thing, you know, and, and I don't know that we've heard that from my current school. At some point, people have talked about, you know, sharing stuff on Facebook or Twitter, you know, during the day or whatever, as a teacher, you know, can kind of look bad. Like, why aren't you with your kids? You're, you're on Facebook, you know, you're sharing things during the day when you should be, you know, doing other things. Um, of course, teachers have breaks and, you know, there's, there's other times where you look at kind of that kind of thing. But I wonder, um, it was probably more than seven years ago that my friend um, with AT&T, Karen Montgomery, we did a session, I know, at, in Missouri at their tech conference and maybe some other places, too. Maybe we did it at ISTE, actually, called Social Media Guidelines for Schools. And that was thinking about a variety of different things. But the idea of how long during the school day um, or if at all, you know, that you want to be on social media and then those kinds of guidelines. My current school prohibits all teachers from following any current student until they uh, turn 18, which is interesting. There are exceptions. Coaches will get exceptions for this. And of course, helping, especially our student athletes, develop and cultivate their digital footprint, um, you know, put their foot forward. Our daughter just applied for, um, it was a science Olympiad scholarship last night, and it asked for a social media profile, LinkedIn or other. And I asked her, because her 
her main choices were like either Instagram or Twitter. Her Instagram is private, but her Twitter doesn't really say a lot about academics. And I said, why don't you just leave it blank? It's optional. If that's not going to enhance your application, I don't know that that's something you necessarily need to put into your application and share. But anyway, any thoughts about that as far as guidelines? Have you have you heard of schools doing that? And any thoughts about the New York Times kind of trying to sort of put some brakes on Twitter use for its journalists? Well, one of the things that I, that I was most struck by this is that um, I follow a couple of uh, journalists on TikTok and uh, uh couple of them kind of fancy themselves like TikTok journalists, right? Like their, their, their primary broadcast medium is TikTok or some other social media area. And I'm thinking about um, Under the Desk News, which is a, 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 a great creator. And then um, I can't remember the other gentleman's name. Uh, the, the, the kids call him News Daddy, which is probably not uh, all that helpful. But, um, uh, but uh the the news daddy gentleman talks about when he, when he writes um and when he is uh coming up with stories to share on TikTok that he's shared his his strategy before and one of them is that he has a large monitor right above his main monitor where he's writing and it has tweet deck on it and he is looking at a variety of lists of 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 what I would as a historian, uh, considered to be primary sources, which is, yes, it's other journalists, but there, uh, the, one of the things about Twitter is that there are a lot of people there that are the politicians themselves or uh, uh, the, the newsmakers themselves are on Twitter. And so he's monitoring that throughout the day. I I think it's it's uh, uh, probably good advice to balance that. And in fact, the New York Times is probably doing what we should be telling everyone to do with social media anyways. It is interesting, and there's a reference to this near the end of the article, that one of the upsides of this is that there are some journalists that just didn't want to be on Twitter. Um, and um, this gives them the opportunity to step back from that platform if they don't want to be there. I get where there's probably some tension in all traditional media outlets to to try to have a social media presence like that. I'm reminded of NPR, which almost all of their anchors and reporters are on Twitter. I follow almost all of them because I like the interplay between them on Twitter. I think it's interesting to watch them banter mm. and talk about the news. Um, but the bottom line is, is that it's probably, it's probably pretty savvy advice to do that. Um, that said, I don't know of any school that has limited, um, social media in that way of teachers. Although I do know that, that, uh, there are a lot of unofficial policies in schools about being careful to tweet about school. Right. Like sure. and, you know, the uh, you probably not going to see a lot of this in the other mainstream media, in part because um, this is intended to be a, a kind of an off the record conversation with folks. But people that have been pretty critical of, of their schools or perhaps of school board members yeah. or maybe administrators in their building, um, you know, there there is certainly pressure that comes with doing that, uh, that, you know, may or may not be welcome pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Peggy was saying it's interesting. Colleges are asking for social media profiles. Um, they're also asking for videos. Um, I had a conversation with the, uh, well, the former department chair of our English department, um, and was sharing with her how our daughter Rachel in, in two different college application processes, one was regular admission for Olin. And then another one was this uh, scholarship at Rose Holman, which she was actually selected for. Um, both of them asked for videos. Now she, she gave me permission actually to post those on my YouTube channel uh, publicly. Um, she's a good sport at 18. Um, and so anyway, those are out there, but you know, that was a surprise to our, uh, our, our English teacher. And we were talking about our college counseling program and saying, you know, we really ought to help our kids with their videography skills and things like that. Um, I work with this teacher on a, a project. I think it was my Geek of the Week last week, actually, where we um, the kids write children's picture books and they create them in um, Book Creator. And then we get them printed in Lulu and then they go read them to our kindergarten and primary kids. And now they're electronically available and they record their voices. And they've also, because of the pandemic and the time they couldn't actually read them in person, made little videos. But you know, you, you see different approaches that kids do, and there's a lot of video savvy that this generation does have because of TikTok and, and YouTube. Um, but anyway, that's a that, that's another thing to think about in all this is, you know, not only are our uses of social media as teachers 
I just think, I mean, I'll be able to disclose next week some exciting uh, college-related news for our daughter, but I'll just say right now, and I think I'm going to write a blog post about this, YouTube was a huge part of our decision matrix. It is amazing what you can learn with YouTube and important decisions like which which do I want to really go to this college? Anyway, it, it played a, a significant role. And the other thing I would say about TikTok and your news journalists that you're citing is, I think we included this a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was a month ago when the Ukraine war started. The White House specifically reached out to TikTok influencers in a press briefing that was specific to them. Now, they weren't really giving, well, they weren't giving any classified information and information that wasn't available at other times. But some people were like, what is that? And, you know, they're listening, you know, TikTok. It is a massive platform. It is a huge way that large numbers of the population uh, get their information, are influenced. Um, and so anyway, it's just, it's something we need to, to pay attention to. I have not signed up for barbecue TikTok yet. I have not opened my TikTok app, you know, in probably the last three months. I don't even know when. But Dr. Neifer continues to encourage me through his just mentioning of the platform and his use of TikTok, you know, because if Dr. Neifer is enjoying <laughs> using a tech tool, it may be it's worth checking out. So it's at least worth some serious consideration. Okay. All right. We, Where's your we next, sir? That long okay. on, on. Yeah, two two topics. So wow. two topics okay. done and thirty four minutes down. Okay. Well, let's do some. Should we do some privacy stuff? Yeah, that sounds great. Well, uh, first, uh, The Verge reports on April twelfth that DuckDuckGo's privacy centric browser is coming to the Mac. And uh, for those of you, we've talked a little bit about this in, in past episodes, but there is a wonderful mobile uh, uh, app that's DuckDuckGo's privacy uh, browser and it's available on Android and iOS. And it's a really interesting uh, um, browser because it shows you what it's blocking. So it will make a list for you of all the things it blocked as part of its settings. And it's, it's kind of like uh, incognito mode if incognito mode actually blocked anything, right? Um, and so um, uh, um, I believe it's based on, on WebKit, on iOS. It's based on um, uh, Chromium, I believe, on Android. And I believe this is also based on Chromium for the Mac. It's not widely available yet. You have to go into the mobile app and request an invite to get the beta. So I've done that. But um, I like DuckDuckGo's uh, privacy browser on my phone. And if I'm just randomly surfing stuff, like I'm not logged into any sites or I'm not doing any shopping, which I need to be in no account or anything like that, I tend to go to the privacy browser first. If I'm Wikipedia surfing or um, uh, uh, a week or so back, uh, well, whenever I watch TV, I tend to have the phone around, especially when I'm watching anything that's based on history because I'll do a little background thing um, uh, to, to find out more bookmarks and pages for later use. I was watching um, uh, The Crown uh, last week, the wonderful Netflix series, uh, which... My wife and I are in the middle of season three, and it's it's so good. Um, but um, I wanted to find out some more about some events in season three and to find out, you know, how much uh, poetic license they took uh, with the series. And as it turns out, it's just great in, in general. So um, uh, uh, coming to a map near you. It's interesting to think about, and, and this is something we even talk to kids and teachers about, what does the, quote, privacy browser do? What does, quote, incognito mode do? What does the Tor browser do? You know, because my understanding of TCP IP and packets and the ways that headers are on packets and everything is, you know, unless you're using Tor, um, your computer is transiting, you know, your, the packets that you are getting in your web browser and you're sending back, those all have your MAC address, I think, of your device that you're using in in there. Um, your ISP is keeping a log of every request that's happening. And so, you know, if if you have and there are things, by the way, I've read I have not searched for these things, but there are things that you can you can search for on the Web that will get the attention of law enforcement. You know, there are there is monitoring that that does happen um, not to put my tinfoil hat on and get everybody paranoid. But there are 
um, folks monitoring these things. And so uh, it's interesting to, to a question uh, that could be explored as to exactly what does that shield you from? I know definitely in, well, I, I, I think <laughs> pretty strongly if, you know, in terms of our own digital footprints that, that that's being gathered about our web browsing, right? I'm probably going to buy a solo stove <laughs> at some point in the future. And I've even clicked that I like the ads on Instagram and on Facebook, knowing that I'm training the machine. Ooh, I'd like to see more solo ads. In fact, there's a competitor called a Brio, which I'm not going to dive into this hole, but these are really cool. They're touted as smokeless fire pits. Have you seen these, by the way? I, I'm not. It that sounds fascinating. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, my um, the the neighbors of my my sister and brother in law have one, and that's where we actually saw Starlink the first time, like a couple summers ago. When we were all around the the wonderful um, you know smokeless fire pit, and then ooh, look at that train of lights. Oh gosh, that's Starlink. Anyway, um, so they it's a technology it's a technology that is you know basically fully combusting the wood inside and, and using, you know, fancy air ducts and stuff like that to get this to work. Anyway, I know that I'm training the machine. I got a, a, a mail out in the snail mail paper for a Brio. And I'm sure it's because I was clicking these ads and they got my address and they sent it to me. So anyway, I'm not upset at any of that. I'm fine with that. I knew clicking those ads that I like those ads that I'm going to see more of it. And I'm good with that. But anyway, it's a it would be a very interesting thing school wise to have students, you know, research that uh, because I think at some level, you know, if you think you are completely, you know, the invisible human uh, surfing the Web because you're in an incognito mode in Chrome or Firefox or Safari or you're, you know, using this DuckDuckGo privacy browser, I think you probably are concealing your, your browsing activity that it's not, you know, you watch a YouTube video, it's not going in your YouTube history. You know, you're not training it in that same way. Um, but there are logs that are being kept of, of your behavior. Um, and I think that you have to go to the extreme of running tour in order to, to be truly opaque, um, in your browsing activity. So that, that is a very interesting arena to talk about. And it's also something that struck me like, when I was tech director, I ended up, you know, saying, oh, well, kids don't need incognito mode. They might look at stuff they shouldn't. Let's turn that off. And it's it, that's a setting that's been preserved. <clears throat> and I kind of regret it a little bit because, you know, for instance, we're teaching about Wikipedia. I mean, whatever you ask kids to do when they're logged into their Chromebook, if they can't go in incognito mode, that goes into their digital footprint. Like Google will keep a record that they've done that. So anyway, privacy browsers are are important. And I think that um, understanding them and also understanding them accurately um, is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's probably also important at some level too. And especially for journalists, especially folks that are in places where persecution is real, um, that's a, you know, that's a number of countries. So glad that those options are available and I'm glad those are continuing to come to more platforms. And then one other privacy article that, uh, well, frankly infuriates me. Um, the Washington Post reported on April 12th that, uh, uh, tax sites. So we're talking about people like TurboTax and H&R Block Online, um, have, uh, well, frankly, sell your information for advertising purposes. And um, that's bad enough. But what annoys me about this is that particularly uh, 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 Intuit, the owner of TurboTax, has spent years lobbying the United States Congress to make sure that uh, we don't have more nuanced options for filing our taxes. One of the things to understand about about filing your taxes is that the government has almost all the information uh, already uh, uh, for you. Uh, your employer submits reports to the government about how much it paid you and how much it took out for taxes. Most of the activity uh, that you do is reported some way, shape, or form to the IRS. And there was a proposal at some point that for the, the majority of American users uh, 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 of uh not users, but a majority of American taxpayers that you could just log into a website from the United States government, confirm the information, click a box, 
tell them how you want to pay or receive your re- or pay your 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 uh, underpay or or get your refund back, and then just file your taxes. Press a button and call it good. But Intuit, the maker of TurboTax, wanted to make sure that there was um, um, uh, a, a need for their software still. And in fact, as part of government initiatives, they've actually asked people like TurboTax to create free versions uh, for uh, lower income people in the United States. And they're available, but they're, they're, they're hard to find. You can't really just go to TurboTax.com and easily use the free version of the software. So for that company to... Uh, if I understand the situation correctly, for that company to, you know, to profit off your personal data and at the same time um, uh, uh, lobby our government for, uh, you know, uh, to, to stop evolution of the way our tax system works to make it easier for filers, I think is abhorrent and, and terrible. Um, but, you know, uh, again, we're in a, a relatively low privacy environment right now with the Internet. We're, we're getting better at it, but still ugh. It, yeah, it's kind of horrific, really. I, the, we had some great articles last week talking about um, the tech correction and Klobuchar, I think, was that her push? Or who was the, the art? No, it wasn't Klobuchar. It was, an, it was um, Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren and the way that she would like to have some legislation, you know, crafted. Um, I mean, it is, it's, it's a lure and it's an offer of benefit, right, for let's take Mint you know, put all of your bank accounts in here and let us track your credit and let us, you know, identify patterns and trends and all of that. And that's very alluring. But at what cost? The cost of being able to use all your data and sell it to data brokers and not ask your permission and not let you know and, you know, have that become part of this massive opaque cloud of confidential data that's out there about all of us. But many times we're volunteering to do that because we're signing up for these free services, much as we enjoy Facebook. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg, or Meta, or whatever. <clears throat> and so anyway, it's this is the surveillance capitalism paradigm that we're living in, which does not appear to be you know, likely to change substantively. Um, we had Cambridge Analytica. It, it didn't move the needle. You know, we had Brexit. We had the 2016 elections in the United States. You know, we, we haven't had a privacy law passed, so... Um, we, I mentioned, I think, oh, a couple weeks ago, I, I really, well, we're, we're getting ready to move and James Jobs, there's all kinds of things going on. Why am I not researching this? But I would, I, I do want to get a better feel for what kind of an advocacy platform around privacy that I just personally want to, want to push for. Um, cause I feel like we definitely talk about these issues a whole lot and we talk about, you know, the need for some change, but I just, I haven't you know, found the, the advocacy platform that I want to have around this. And I really think that, that we need that. And we're going to need informed legislators um, and of course lobbyists and everybody who's involved in the, in the legislative process at state and federal levels to come around these kinds of issues and not just let the tech companies like decide what to do, you know, because then we'll get things like this, you know, TurboTax decision of yeah, uh, let's just certainly. let's charge them here, and then we'll make more on the backside with the data. So, yeah, Peggy says she just expects it. All right, well, hey, we got about fifteen more minutes. What else do you want to talk about? Well, uh, uh, picking up one uh, we have previously haven't talked about. Uh, Chromebox reported on April third that the new Adobe Creative Cloud Ex- Express is now a perk in the Chromebook uh, or for, for Chromebook users. And so there's a perks page you can get to in the settings of your Chromebook. And there's always free stuff there for Chromebook users. And um, uh, Adobe's Creative Crowd Express is the kind of rebranding of several of their web-based design tools, kind of Canva-like, um, but there's a, a different facets of that. If you're a, pr- a private user, you can get, I think it's two months for free now um, so that you can uh, easily design things on your Chromebook. But I would also note that if you are a uh, any kind of K-12 institution, you can get access to the Creative Cloud Express for free. Uh, all you have to do is sign up. Um, in, uh, for me, it was as simple as uh, registering with Adobe and then changing some settings in our Google domain so that students could access uh, the particular uh, product. Um, 
but uh, that's a free service uh, for, for K-12 schools. And so, um, you know, if you are, are not as part of a K-12 school uh, or if you're a district won't sign up for that, which there might be decent reasons uh, for that to happen, then um, you can get two months for free from directly from Adobe. That article mentions a host of other tools that I have not seen before. One of them is Cubasis 3 Music Recording and Mixing. This is a Google Play app by Steinberg Media that looks like GarageBand. Wow. Yeah. That that article, wow, is ref. I'll put that. I'll drop that into the show notes. Yeah, there what and there's always wonderful uh, 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 perks on there that, especially if you're, you know, living the Chrome lifestyle or Chrome OS lifestyle, um, then a great place to find services that work well in Chromebooks. Well, and I'll just do a shout out with Adobe. Uh, it's now Adobe CC Express. It was Adobe Spark. I absolutely love that platform. And there is so much that you can do, and it is free um, for educational institutions to, to set up, and, and users can, can have, use it free too. I've created literally hundreds of, of info picks, mainly about Bible verses, but you know, it is just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And it's a flexible platform. We were using it last year with our iPad pilot that we did with sixth grade and didn't miss a beat, you know, doing stuff on Chromebooks, actually like it a little better on the iPad. Um, but man, it is, it is phenomenal. So then we've talked about this before the March of, you know, the maturity of the web of HTML five, right. Or maybe it's beyond that, but yeah, just the, the maturity of the web and the ability for a lot of us to do our entire lives on a Chromebook. I mean, and that's what, you know, that's Google's dream is let's live in, live in the browser. So very cool. Um, why don't we talk about a couple of uh, Ukraine and Russia war articles? Um, and I had, I, yeah, I get, I thank you for carrying these forward because the, some of these are from some past weeks that we just didn't get to, which by the way, if you're not subscribed to our Substack, you can go to edtechsr.substack.com uh, and, when the show gets published, which is sometimes the day of the next show, but sometimes it's earlier, um, you'll get all the links that we talk about plus the ones that we don't. So I'll do two at least quickly. Um, New York Times, March 31st, how war in Ukraine roiled Facebook and Instagram. And this one is fascinating for several reasons. Oh, which by the way, when I'm sharing these articles now, man, I'm going to have to uh, I try to share a gift link um, because, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, these folks require a subscription in many cases to uh, be able and to be able to, to um, access the full link. <laughs> and that'll be what's interesting is that gift link is so big that it'll be cut off and put in multiple pieces if I if I put it in. So I'm going to have to bitly it and then I'll put it in the show notes. But the article talks about how apparently Facebook wasn't ready, or Meta, wasn't ready for the Ukraine and Russian war, which of course, who was to, to see what it has become. But they have moderated content with in many other situations that have involved violence and, and controversy. Um, and so there's just been all kinds of pressure that they've dealt with and they just didn't have, you know, policies in place. They have revised half a dozen times these uh, content policies. Um, they have allowed some content that normally they would have taken down. That could that included content calling for the death of President Putin of Russia, violence against Russian soldiers. They've drawn up new guidelines. I mean, it's just basically a dumpster fire. Uh, so, you know, shame on Facebook, guys. Come on, wake up. This is a complicated world full of conflict and sometimes violence. And, you know, get your act together. That being said, maybe um, Ethan Zuckerman is correct in a perception that you're not going to be able to successfully have a, one, a single set of standards and guidelines for social media platforms for the entire planet. You know, we're going to need to eventually move to a scenario where we have smaller social media networks and, and folks that are going to establish local guidelines and, and things aren't just going to be universal. I don't know if that's true or not, but I thought that was a fascinating article um, and the war, I was listening to 
the daily, which is a New York times podcast. It's just wonderful today about this next phase. I just, I can't believe the levels of violence that are happening right now. It is just, it's just horrific. You know, it, it really is. Um, and we need to, by the way, pay attention to this with our students and, and talk about this in the Wikipedia lesson series. And I've got to be careful because, you know, with images and things like that, I don't want to traumatize anybody or have kids, you know, go out and look for things that are going to be traumatic because this is involving an actual war. But anytime there are current events, Wikipedia is a very uh, interesting and useful resource to use, especially to see how people are arguing over facts and what happened and what's vetted and where's the source and all that kind of stuff. And uh, one more article. Um, this one uh, actually is from The Guardian on April 3rd. Photographer Maxim Levin's work in the Ukraine in pictures. And this probably always happens during significant conflicts that you, you see these gripping pictures that just talk about, tell a story. Um, just so powerful from refugees to protests to soldiers, you know, cooking um, to uh, Ukrainians moving a road sign to try to confuse uh, Russian soldiers who are coming to, to tanks firing to the damage done from uh, shelling, um, you know, in Kiev. Um, to Ukrainian armed forces, uh, you know, gathering around with some of their weapons, the, the pictures of devastated apartment buildings, you know, holes in, in buildings. Um, it just goes on and on. But um, I do not, one of the things that the philosopher Immanuel Kant believed and wrote in this essay called Perpetual Peace, which sadly is not proven to be, uh, well, we don't have liberal democracies all across the planet. Maybe if we do, what he said was we wouldn't go to war with each other because we would see the cost of the conflict and we would find other ways to resolve our conflicts. And so I think there's some there's a balance to be struck there. And we need to be careful as teachers, again, that we're not traumatizing our students. It's very easy to do in this day of lockdown drills and real school shootings and all kinds of traumatic things that do happen in our society. But on the other hand, and depending upon the age of your students and your, your situation, I think it's really important to talk about these issues. And, um, you know, that particular article that, that shows these images, which is not graphic violence, but just very poignant, powerful images that tell some incredible stories. Um, we need to be powerful communicators. And today that means we have to use media. And, and that's a good example of that. And I think that could be used as a good catalyst for conversations about Ukraine, but also the ways in which media can be used powerfully. And I've heard some journalists say here recently that, you know, this um, attack that killed 50 and injured hundreds uh, on the train um, depot uh, in, I think, eastern Ukraine. It just the way that Vladimir Putin might have really miscalculated how media and social media was going to amplify this. I just, I don't think anybody's ever going to be able to treat him the same. And, and I, I don't know what the outcome of all this is going to be. Um, but I do know that media is playing a critical role. The internet's playing a critical role and it's something that we need to continue to pay attention to because I told my daughter today, I said, honey, you are going to be studying this in college. And I'll tell you all next where she's going to college, but I mean, she will. And, and the other students at her school will be. So your thoughts, Dr. Neifer, I kind of went off on that. A little no, and I, I'm, I'm glad you did. And I think that, that uh, I have equally strong opinions about this. The thing I would say is that, uh, you know, it is so interesting to be in this kind of tragic warfare situation in a an aggressive social media era, right? Um, that you know, obviously, there's been a lot of things that have gone on in the world in the, in in the kind of the social media era, which I would say, in 2005, six, seven ish to today. But um, you know, going back to our earlier um, conversation about the New York Times and 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 the encouragement that journalism journalists might want to step away from a bit from the from the, from the Twitter occasionally. The thing I would say is that there is. Um, there is a lot of of people reporting from the ground uh, in 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 Ukraine, right? So uh, it is one of the things that um, um, 
you know, we want to be super conscious of uh, in, in the social media era. And if I were teaching right now and I would be in a socialist classroom because that's what I taught, um, I and, I, and I, I'm, I'm really glad you made that important note, um, Dr. Fryer, about the notion of we don't want to traumatize our kids. There's some awfully raw images that are spread around pretty quickly. Um, but seeing what that's like on the ground from an, an unfiltered view, I think, has a lot of utility to it. It's also a unique situation because certainly we weren't getting access to that kind of stuff um, in, you know, think of any of the major conflicts or tragedies of the 20th century. That just wasn't where um, our media access lied. So I, a very important note, and, and I'm glad you, you brought that up. All right. Uh, we probably need a Geek of the Week, but any last articles you want to, to hit before the Geeks of the Week? Um, I think this can all wait till next week. So Okay. All right. Well, what you got for us for a Geek of the Week? Well, speaking of online design, um, Canva, the wonderful Canva platform, uh, which uh, is basically my go-to design platform now. I don't really open up, and I have access to to a cheap version of the uh, Creative Cloud suite um, uh, through work, but most of my editing now is uh, and, and image creation is on Canva. Uh, I would also note that, uh, again, free, the pro version is free for schools, your teachers and your students, but they've put together um, a pretty interesting little e-learning style uh, uh, class on um, how to design things for students. And it's, um, I've been through about half of it. I'd say it's probably an hour, hour and a half. I would say maybe two days in a standard, you know, 45 minute class. Uh, you could get through this with students, but if you're having students work on a project in your classroom and uh, you're giving them access to tools like this, it might be a really interesting way to have students teach themselves about how to use these platforms before they utilize them in a project in your courses. And that's at canva.com slash design school. That is fantastic. Uh, and I'm going to do my Geek of the Week, a little 14-minute video I made last week on using Jamboard with Google Classroom. I think Jamboard is probably one of the more underutilized tools, along with Google Drawing, in the, the Google-verse of Google Workspace, what we used to call Google Apps for Education. And uh, I'm trying to use it more with my kids. And so um, I've used it for some brainstorming recently. I've used it for some see, think, and wonder thinking routines, or Project Harvard Project Zero thinking routines, which are awesome. Uh, it's just a, it's a great tool. It's a great platform. It's also a case where I find I really need to set some clear expectations um, about what we're not going to do because there's a laser pointer. And whenever I'll not do this with fifth or sixth graders, we'll have kids, you know, going crazy. It's like, guys, you're probably not going to come grab my, my pen and write all over my whiteboard during class or grab a laser pointer and just flash it all over the front of the room. We're in class. And anyway, it's a it ends up being a mini lesson about our expectations during a blended, in this case, you know, learning scenario. But fantastic tool, great platform, has different affordances compared to Google Slides and, you know, docs and other kinds of things like that. So there's a tutorial. And if that helps you, that would be wonderful. So, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here on Wednesday nights, helping us especially focus on the core hard tech news, which is always good we get in. Um, and also impressing us with the growing stack of books behind you. Uh, where else can people find you? Yeah, I've, I've got to get caught up on my reading. Um, the best place to find me when my nose is not in a book is on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. And I am westfryer.com. My Twitter is wfryer, and you can pretty much find all kinds of places to link to me on that website. And of course, this is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast and web show that tries to take a look at some of the recent technology news and pass it through an educational lens and perhaps offer some insight into how that might be relevant to us as teachers and educators. We want to invite you to follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. You can follow us on Facebook where we have a Facebook page and we're probably having uh, some folks take a look at that each week. I haven't looked at the metrics yet. Uh, we're uh, somewhere over what 700 or something like that subscribers on Twitter. And I think that we've got like 75, Oh, 622. Okay. Um, 
anyway, we can, you know, we're, we're growing and, and we uh, appreciate any recommendations that you might have. You can find us on just about any podcasting, uh, pod catching platform. Um, and just ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of the EdTech Situation Room, and hopefully you'll find us. But we share small MP3 versions of our podcast along with smaller compressed audio that if you want to subscribe that way, or you can just watch us on YouTube and Facebook. So we want to thank you for tuning in. Thanks to Dr. Neifer for doing again the lion's share of the link sharing. And if you'd like to get those links, remember, you can always find us on our Substack. All of our show notes you can find it at techsr.com. So until next time, stay savvy, stay safe. Happy Easter to you as well. Peggy George, thank you for joining us live. And we hope you will be able to join us live soon on another episode of the EdTech Situation. Good night.